All right, let's pause and pray. Father God, in this hour, we ask that your mercy and grace be upon these hearers, that your spirit would apply and remind us of your son's work, that you are praised in the fullness of your being. Lord, these pages proclaim your glory that we hope for, that we look forward to. So give us more hope, give us more confidence, give us more joy. Grow our anticipation of your coming. Lord, I pray that you would make that thought a comfort to those who are brought anxiety by it right now, that you'd heal that by the power of your gospel. Lord, we confess to you our unworthiness our inadequacy, our failure to walk in a manner worthy even though you have provided your spirit to your people. Pray that you'd forgive us for seeing other things as more worthy than you this week. I pray that you would fix that. In fact, Lord, I pray that in our hearts you would kill and destroy anything that seeks to take us away from you. And protect us from the schemes of the evil one, as surely he is at work in that way as well. So Lord, let us hold fast to the truth that has been delivered to us by your sovereign hand through the ages and kept for us here in your word. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's probably hardly, or I'll just go ahead and make a bold statement. How about that? There is nobody else save the Apostle John who has seen during their earthly life the things that Paul saw. Paul was invited into the revelation of Jesus Christ in a way that no other human being has ever been or ever will be till it is our eternal reality. He, he was, things were shared with him, knowledge and visions, and he was even speaking about being caught up to the third heaven, whatever that is, which probably just means heaven. Uh, but still, the things that he was privy to are mind-blowing to think about especially when he makes those little mentions of things that he's seen or things that he knows and things that he could boast about but does not. So if you, if you think about that and then transition to this thought, whenever Paul gets a chance, he glories in the gospel. He doesn't go on for page after page of, Oh, I saw this, and, and, and I heard this when I saw this, and all that. No, if he ever gets the opportunity again and again, multiple times in his letters, he will um, glory in, revel in the gospel. Simply the gospel. 
That is the thing that blows his mind. And I feel confident in saying that about him because he talks about it all the time. Anytime he opens a letter, anytime he closes a letter, anytime he ends a prayer in his letters, anytime he does anything, it is all not only with this gospel flavor, but with a gospel reminder in it. And so that's what these verses are. We're going to actually go to verse 15 today. I just changed my mind this morning. And we're going to see that this is what he's about, that everything that he's pointing the Thessalonians to, every, every end-time reality that he is sharing with them um, has to do with it, with it being a revelation of what the gospel has won for us and what the gospel gives us hope in. And so he always brings people back there. That's where he wants to be. And, and you always see him do this. He starts a sentence and he's here he's going to talk about giving thanks to God for them. And he can't help but just dive off into the deep end of the gospel. And, and really briefly, it seems, explain, I give, I give thanks for you because of this. And it's always the gospel, the good news. In other words, uh, this is not only good news to Paul, this is the best news. He's, he's never stops, never, ever stops trusting in, believing in, hoping in, proclaiming, sharing, um, explaining the gospel. And by the way, right, this is a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. This guy has much knowledge. This guy uh, has a much revelation shown to him. He could go off in all manner of interesting rabbit trails and gain all sorts of uh, cultural influence and, and prosperity. But what does Paul always do? He assumes, he says, to know nothing amongst us except the gospel, period. That's what he's always going back to. So I, I titled this Comforting Confidence because if there's anything that the Thessalonians are struggling with, it is the uh, assurance of their faith. It, it is the anxiety about the second coming of Christ and even what preempts that second coming. And if you would be honest with yourself this morning, you probably feel some of the same anxieties, probably some of the same uncertainties, probably some of the same distractions. Because we're even going to see later on in this letter that the Thessalonians were so distracted by this that some of them chose to just take a seat and wait. Like literally just stopped working and waited for this thing to happen. Because that was all they could think about. But Paul is such a great shepherd and lover of their souls. He assures them of what is certain because of the gospel so that they can stand firm and continue on in the things that he taught them to continue on in. So first we're going to talk about being saved. This is why he's giving thanks for them. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
First of all, notice this. Your Bible never says the word Trinity, right? But it shows you the Trinity. How does it show you the Trinity? Well, it shows you the Trinity in verse 13 in this way. It says, God chose you. God, the Father, elects. The Son loves. You're beloved by the Lord, he tells them. And they're saved through sanctification by what? The Spirit. So Father, Son, Spirit, all working together to bring about the gospel glory that's to be ours in verse 14. And you can interchange all of their names and titles with all of these things that are happening. It is all of the one Lord. But there is the Trinity working. And he said that God chose them as the first fruits to be saved. Does that mean that they are the first ever believers? No. Does it mean that they're the first believers in Thessalonica? Well, probably. But I would go even further. I think he is actually, some of your translations say that God chose them from the beginning. doesn't use the word first fruits. And this would line up with what we read in Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he saved us. That is talking about being chosen from the beginning. And I think that's what he actually literally means. That them, along with all believers, have been chosen or saved from the beginning by the counsel of God's own will and in love Paul says in Ephesians 1 that's why they were but we can't look over the fact that they were chosen to be saved we need to always be able to answer the question saved from what saved from what Romans 5 9 since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. And we've gone over this several times, but we have to remember that we're not saved from something that is more terrifying than the wrath of God. It establishes who the righteous judge is and where he sits and where we belong under the wrath of God. So, we need to understand that. And, and that was a big uh, telling point in my life. I remember knocking on someone's door. Brent, I think you might have been with me that night. A guy came to the door with a broken leg, and I was stumbling through some sort of gospel presentation to him. And he heard me say the word saved. And he said, saved from what? And I kind of froze. And then his wife slammed the door on me. But then I went home and I figured out, well, what, what exactly are we saved from? Well, we're saved from the consequence of being sinners, which is the terrifying wrath of God. We're not saved from some sort of Hollywood version of hell where, where Satan and his minions are torturing people day and night. No, that is a place where they're tortured day and night. Along with all the evildoers, we are saved from the wrath of God that puts them there. That torments them there. We are to fear the Lord in Him only. 
So to be saved is to be saved from his own wrath by his own hand. Doesn't that make the gospel even more glorious? Romans 3.26, so that he could be the just and the justifier. That's one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture. That the judge has also declared righteous as he took his own sentence. There is no other God in all of human religions like this God who saves us from his wrath. You know, John the Baptist got it. What did he tell those Pharisees when they came out to see him? He said, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Wrath to come? For us, Pharisees? Yeah, for all unrighteous people, wrath is to come. And I love how he couches are being saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, we know our Bibles, and we know Romans 8 tells us that if we've been called, we've been if we've been predestined, we've been called. If we've been called, we've been justified. We've been justified. We've been glorified. It's, a, it's a, almost a past tense reality because God has settled it. Jesus declares what is to become of those whom the Father has given to him. They are to receive this glory. We are not fully glorified yet, right? So the Bible uses that phrase, being saved. Being saved can can be the same as what we call sanctification, being made holy. We will be holy in His presence, perfectly holy. We are being made holy now until we get to His presence, sanctification. He has chosen to not just, once we're saved, to zap us from justification into glorification, but He works out our salvation in us, so that when we get to glory, there is more praise, more celebration, more joy. He is amplifying our eternal experience to the point that with Paul, we'll be able to say, oh man, all of that suffering, not worth comparing to this glory. He is revealing, he is becoming intimately acquainted with us slowly and surely so that we are not caught off guard when we enter his glory uh, in eternity, but that we are welcomed home where we know we belong with who we know we belong to. Sanctification is so important. Our growth as his people into holiness is of utmost importance while we are here. Paul says, look, uh, in Philippians, if, if I were to die, that would be great because I'll go be with the Lord, and that's far better than being here. Amen. But if I remain, that's fruit. That's growth. That is goodness that's going to lead to the fact that we're all going to get there at some point. And it's going to be through sanctification. And so this, the Bible is going to say being saved. 
1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, with which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This is a glorious reality. The gospel being preached to us, being received, is what we are being being saved by. It doesn't mean, that the term being saved doesn't mean that you can uh, break that or that you can fall out of that. It simply means God's work that he started, right, is not completed yet. How do you know it's completed? Uh, you see him face to face. That's when it's completed. Until then, there's work. And it's by the Spirit, which is this glorious, awesome help. It's God's presence. It's God's way. It's God doing this work. John 14, 23 through 26 Jesus, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There is Jesus explaining to them this new idea for them, the Spirit's presence with them and what he's going to do. He's sent from the Father in Jesus' name to teach us all things and to bring to remembrance what Jesus said. So when you read Acts and you hear uh, the apostles or you, or you hear the, or Luke commentate about how at that moment they understood what Jesus had told them, that's the Spirit working in them. Or if you have that experience in your life, whatever the context is, if it's anger, if it's whatever, and you remember what has been said by Jesus or by the apostles in the Scriptures, that is the Spirit working within you to bring to remembrance all that He said, because this is all that He said that we know of. And if that's happening for you, don't just chalk it up to Bible memory or recollection. Chalk it up to the fact that what Romans talks about is happening, that, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is testifying with your spirit that you are children of God. Because if that's happening, God is working out your salvation. He is sanctifying you. He is making you more holy. John 16, 13 through 14, when the spirit of truth comes, notice how he puts the spirit together with the truth, right? Because Jesus is the truth. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is him. This is the Holy Spirit 
I would even argue this. The Holy Spirit's main job is to not whip you up into a charismatic frenzy where you feel like you know God. The Holy Spirit's job is to remind you that God has spoken to you and to believe what he has said. He's taking what Jesus is, his word, and he's applying it to you, declaring it to you. And what is that that he's declaring? The truth? Because we're great self-deceivers. Satan's a great deceiver, liar. So we value the Holy Spirit because he speaks truth to us. He doesn't sugarcoat things. No, all he does is take this and bring it to you. And what does that do, Jesus says? That glorifies him. That glorifies Jesus. You know, how that's really going to glorify Jesus? Think about the context in which we're, we're speaking here. You have a people that are um, worried, anxious about the second coming of Christ. And you have Paul talking about how many, uh, when the man of lawlessness comes and the power of Satan, how many are going to be deceived by him and how he's going to try and draw away even the elect or the chosen that Paul's calling the Thessalonian church here. And, and notice... Uh, the contrast. His people are people who are believing the truth and having it applied by the Spirit versus those who are believing the evil one and being deceived under the sovereignty of God as judgment we read about last week. And so his people will overcome because of the Spirit abiding with them to declare truth and remind them of truth. So when the deceiver is speaking, when the deceiver is working, when the deceiver is moving in these supernatural ways, his people, by his spirit, are reminded of what truth is. And they're not carried away. And they overcome because of that. So, so let, let's put it this way. If we don't have the spirit of God, you and I will be deceived. You and I will fall away. You and I will forget. Take Israel as they get into the promised land and read the book of Judges. These people don't have and are not walking by the Spirit of God. So what do they do? They forget. They get deceived. Destruction. And yet God mercifully still saves them because he's abundantly gracious. Not to mention the fact we can also look at what, what is produced when the Spirit is doing this. You can read Romans 8, you can especially read Galatians 5, and you can see these things that happen when the Spirit is the one at work, when your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And then Galatians 5, all that fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of that, that comes from him. That's what's produced. And so when that's produced by the Spirit, taking the truth from Jesus and applying it to you, Jesus is glorified in his people because they're declaring who he is in what they do because of what they believe. That's why your love for one another makes known the gospel to the world. You are living according to the Spirit and that is glorifying Jesus because they see him 
in your midst. That's why I like Mark Dever's uh, simple definition of the church. It's the gospel made visible. It's a bunch of diverse people living in unity because they believe the truth that has set them free from sin and death. That's what it is. And that is most important in this world. Our unity and fellowship is most important. And I'll give a brief word of uh, personal application here to you guys. What I looked most forward to about that carnival is that people saw you together. That everybody from the outside came and saw the brothers and sisters of FBC Holt together. I want to expose people to you as much as I can. Because I have utmost confidence because God has chosen you and is working out, is, is making you worthy of the calling to which you've been called, that they will see these things by the Spirit at work in His people here, and they will what? Give glory to God. So, <laughs> I love for people to see you all together, us all together. Um, 1 John 4.4 4. Here's a great reminder for us. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who's in you? The Spirit. The presence of Jesus. He's greater than the world. He's in you. You can overcome The second phrase there at the end of verse 13, when it talks about being saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, belief in the truth is our trust in the truth. It's our trust. In moments where it feels like the world will overcome us or temptation will overcome us or whatever will overcome us, do we trust what is true about God? Do we trust in the midst of temptation that he'll provide the way of escape? Do we trust that, that he is more than that thing that we want or want to do? Do we hope in him? Do we trust that in our suffering this is all being worked together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose? Do you trust that in the midst of suffering? Do you trust that because of what Jesus did in absorbing the wrath of God for your sin on the cross, you are going to be welcomed into his eternal presence when you die? Do you trust that? That, that contrasts verse 10 and 11. When those who are perishing are falling for all this wicked deception... Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved from the wrath of God. But you, I hope you are trusting that truth. Now let's talk about being glorified. 
To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You read those phrases a lot in Scripture. The glory of the Lord, obtaining the glory of the Lord, being welcomed into his glory, receiving his glory. You hear of glory a lot. Well, let's figure out some more about it. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2, verse 12, we exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the idea as we go forward through this glory is that God is uh, calling us into it, inviting us into it, and here's the big one, he's sharing it with us. He's sharing it with us. That's why he says the, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus has obtained glory. And for his people, he has obtained glory. So you can go to Romans 4, 5, and you can see that through the one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And because all sin, death spread to all men. So how much more through the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, may the many be made righteous. You know, Adam did a heck of a job uh, winning sin for us. But what did Jesus do? He obtained glory. John 17, 22, Jesus praying in his high priestly prayer, to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And then verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. <laughs> he wants not only for you to see his glory, but he wants you to share it with you. This is glory that is incomprehensible. This is, this is glory that will, that will overshadow any need for stars or sun or moon. His glory will uh, alight the heavens eternally. It will not burn out. It will only burn bright, and he's going to share that with you. It's only his. It's only his. It was his glory before the foundation of the world. Uh, his love of the Father that he enjoyed, and yet he's going to share that. He's going to dispense that. Romans 8, 17. And if we're children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we are following Jesus as we're being saved. We are, we are being um, persecuted. We are being brought through moments of suffering, which is for our sanctification, by the way. Um, to the point where we're going to be glorified with him. And then Romans 8 will go on to unpack that, saying that all of creation is groaning with eager longing for that revealing, for that restoration of, of God's creatures to, to find finally their eternal glory in him. And, and don't pass by the fact that he says you're going to be fellow heirs with Christ. 
You, you are receiving, if you are in Christ, an inheritance that the most, the only perfect and pure and righteous man obtained. Who's his father, by the way? That'll tell us what the inheritance is going to be like. His father's God. That inheritance is yours? I think one of the immediate responses to that thought is, <laughs> I'm not worthy of that. Probably quite the opposite. So then you can praise and thank him and glory in him the proper way, not as those who are deserving, but as those who have been freely given grace. It makes the thankful, hum humble people and when we forget that, we can fall in some pretty serious ways. Ephesians 1.18, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why is it that we have such a hard time looking forward to our inheritance? We're so temporal. We're, we're so invested in the here and now that we have such a poor eternal vision. And there's corrective lenses for that. It's called the truth. And what we just went over, the Spirit himself will remind you of that so that when you lose perspective, the Spirit will bring it back to you and it will humble you and it will move you to truly value the things that are actually valuable. To invest in uh, things in the place in which Moth and rust cannot destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. It calls you to invest eternally in the kingdom. One thing we do when I do premarital counseling and we look at finances is we look at the fact that the return on investment in investing in the kingdom of God is so much greater than the dollars and cents that we put on returns on investment here in this world. We, we can't measure it. We don't know what it is. Jesus assures his disciples, he says, look, if you've given up houses or lands or, or family for me, uh, it will be restored to you hundredfold. You, you can almost see him speaking as a father to his children who are anxious about nothing, Comforting them with, with a, a truth that they can't imagine. They just can't. We get glimpses of heaven. We get glimpses, glimpses of the hope and the glory that we've been called to. We, we get enough that we have reason to hope through all of life. And that encompasses all the suffering, all the persecution, all the temptation, all of that. We have enough. 
but the test is, are you going to stand firm in that? Is this gospel enough for you? Is it enough hope for you? So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. As a result of the gospel, as a result of being chosen by God before the foundation of the world to obtain the glory that is only deserving of his son, stand firm, hold to that. And look, the traditions he's talking about here, um, because he says that you were taught by us, either we said them to you face to face or we wrote them to you, uh, read 1 Thessalonians. Those things is what he's talking about, those traditions, the traditions of, of living according to the truth, encouraging one another with these words, applying this truth to their community together, forgiving one another, bearing each other's burdens. Those are the traditions, not where this table belongs or, or this and that. Or not that we have this sort of gathering or, or whatever, this time of year. It's the traditions of the faith. Of applying the gospel to life. And so basically verse 15 is simply this. Don't lose perspective. And the graciousness of God is seen in the graciousness of Paul as he comforts these people with what? The truth. The truth of who God is, the truth of who they are, and therefore that is enough to stand firm. If, if in ever our recent modern history in our American context, you've been called to stand firm, it's now. If you are going to obtain this inheritance promised to Jesus and to his saints to be revealed on that final day, you had better learn and investigate if you believe this. Because you're only going to make it by this. And listen, if you just know it intellectually, that's not enough. I'll give you a brief story, and then I'll uh, close. A dear young lady in your church this week was uh, in a position where she needed to stand for truth. And I thought about myself being in that position, and I thought, I know what's right. I know the truth. I know what I should say in that moment. But if it had not been for the Spirit working in her, and if it would not be for the Spirit working in me in a situation like that, then we would have fallen to deception. Fallen to a lie. Fallen to the ways of the world and just accepted what they said was okay. But the Spirit... The Spirit gets the glory for working, for reminding, and for moving us further down 
the sanctification trail to one day receiving glory with Jesus. So I pray that you'd meditate on those things, respond to the Lord, and then we'll stand and sing together.